Who recognizes which store this is? Oh, yeah, say it out, Blockbuster. There we go. Who remembers the thrill of a Friday night going to Blockbuster and picking out a movie and some candy? Yeah, nostalgia, anybody? Who in here has never been inside a Blockbuster before? Oh, yeah, that's what I thought. There wasn't as many in the first service, but I knew there'd be some here. Uh, For me, it's a little bit different. In high school, I worked for a local video store called Showtime Video. It was, yeah, there we go. Somewhat of a competitor to Blockbuster, better than Blockbuster. And aside from making $6 an hour, I loved when my friends would come in on a Friday night and I'd give them free movies and free candy and they'd help me return all of the DVDs and the VHSs to their shelves all over the store. It was like a treasure hunt because it's just everywhere. And then sadly, there are many in this room today that will never know what it's like to walk down the aisles of a Blockbuster video. On the positive side, though, you'll never know what it's like to have late fees for not returning your DVD on time. It really was just an entire experience. There was, there was buildup. There was anticipation. There was hoping that the movie that you wanted wasn't already rented by somebody else. There was the hope that your VHS would be rewound. There was the, the, the joy of getting home and setting up the living room for movie nights. This is just an experience that really can't be replicated anymore. Sad to say. But Blockbuster is out of the conversation, though, from today because they missed an opportunity. They obviously dominated in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s, but today, streaming services have taken over. But it wasn't always the case, and this could have been Blockbuster. In, in the year 2000, Netflix, a small company, mail-in DVD company that was struggling at the time, offered Blockbuster the opportunity to buy them for $50 million. And the CEO of Blockbuster just laughed and kicked him out of the office, and that was a pretty big mistake, right? We know what happened. The mail-in DVDs became streaming services, and now Netflix is valued at over $240 billion. Billion with a B. They are one of the top 50 companies in the whole world. Blockbuster missed an opportunity. And I, I wonder, if you look back on your life, and you reflected, what would you say your biggest missed opportunity was? Today in our passage, as we continue in the gospel according to Luke, Jesus is going to warn us about not missing an opportunity. And this opportunity, worth more than $240 billion, is the free offer of peace. The free offer of true peace, everlasting peace, peace with God. In our passage today, Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem, and he stops, and he looks out over the city. And he wept over it. He wept because he looked at the people in that city and he knew that they were going to reject him. He knew that they were going to refuse his offer of peace. And it brought him sorrow. It brought him pain and it brought him to tears. Because he knew it was going to be a costly 
choice. And so our big truth for today is this. Jesus came as the humble king to bring peace. And he will return as the exalted king to bring judgment. We must not reject the peace that Jesus offers. We must not miss the Messiah. It will be the biggest missed opportunity of your life. And so, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 28 through 44. And as you turn there, it's important to keep in mind the context of where we have been in the Gospel of Luke and where we were last week. Last week, we read how Jesus continued to approach Jerusalem and he told the crowds a parable of the ten minas. And so there were many who thought the kingdom of God was going to come immediately and in some form of political victory. And so Jesus tells this parable to show that the kingdom of God is not going to come in its fullness until Christ returns a second time. And so this parable from last week it depicts a nobleman who entrusts a large sum of money to his servants, and he goes away into a faraway country, and he returns as the king, and he rewards and he punishes his servants based on how they stewarded his investments. And so this parable illustrated stewardship, yes, but it also communicated that Jesus' second coming is not going to happen immediately, but when it does, he's going to return as the king. And so last week's parable sets up our passage today as Jesus continues to head toward Jerusalem, as he continues to head toward his death. So let's go ahead and read, starting in verse, verse 28. <clears throat> and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you 
when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You end your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So as we work through this text, we're going to look at three big ideas or three main points. And our first is simply this. It's the first half of our big truth. Jesus came as the humble king to bring peace. And this covers 28 through 36. And so verse 28 begins by reminding us that Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem. He made his way toward that holy city knowing he was headed toward his death. This passage is often called the triumphal entry or it's called Palm Sunday and it's recorded in each of the four gospel accounts. And so Jesus sends two disciples ahead into a village to get him a colt or a donkey that had never been ridden before and he tells the disciples, hey, if the owners ask, tell them the Lord has need of it. And so it's kind of a a funny picture when you think about it, right? Like two guys walk up to you, and they say, hey, we need to take your donkey. And you're like, "Uh, no, the Lord has need of it. Okay, sure, go ahead, right? I picture in my head, Obi-Wan Kenobi, these aren't the droids that you're looking for, right? (laughs) But the disciples didn't manipulate the owners with the force. This scene is actually really cool because it's showing that Jesus is Lord of all things, And all things belong to him. The Greek word behind our translation, owners, it's the same Greek word as the word for Lord, just in the plural form. And so what it's saying is the owners of the cult, the lords of the cult, said, why are you untying it? And the disciples said, because the Lord needs it. Luke is highlighting the reality that Jesus is Lord of all lords, that he is king of all kings, that he is sovereign. And this cult and how the disciples respond reveal that Jesus came as a humble king. You see, the Old Testament depicted that the Davidic, the Messianic king, was going to come on a donkey riding into Jerusalem. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy that Zechariah gave back in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, which read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So notice how this prophecy highlights the humble way in which the king rides into Jerusalem. In ancient Near East times, a king who would ride in on a mighty war horse is declaring war. He's coming to make war. But a king who rides in on a donkey is indicating that he is coming in peace. The king of the Old Testament prophecy will be the ruler of all, and he will bring peace from sea to sea, to the ends of the earth. Israel would have 
clung to prophecies and promises like these. Israel has had a tumultuous history, still does today. And around the time that Zechariah gave this prophecy, Israel had just returned from a 70-year exile. They were drug out of Jerusalem and, and, and ripped out of their homes and brought into Babylon. Their temple was destroyed, and they have just returned to their, to their city. The temple is lying in ruins. They're starting to rebuild it. And they're still fearful of the enemies. That's the context of this prophecy. Israel was longing for the Messiah. They were longing for stability. They were longing for peace. And although our context is certainly different, we are the same in longing for peace in our lives. Our lives are filled with uncertainty, with with worry, with fear. Sometimes it feels like our lives are marked by anything but peace. Maybe for you it's uncertainty. It's the uncertainty of, of who to marry, uh, of where to live, where to work, where you're going to be in one year, five years, ten years. Maybe for you it's, it's worry about not being able to afford a home in Fort Collins to raise your family. Maybe it's worry about your kids growing up in this current cultural moment and the pressures and the influences that they are being bombarded with. Maybe it's worry about finding a job. Finding a job that that gives you a sense of purpose, that you like, that they respect you. Maybe you have fear. Fear of your health. Fear of someone you love's health. And in the midst of all the uncertainty, of all the worry, of all the fear, we try to find peace in the wrong things. We believe that we can find peace in success, in a good job. We believe that we can find peace once we are in the right relationship, in the right home. Being that we live in Colorado, people think that they can find peace by going up to the mountains. All these things will not give you the peace that your soul longs for. It will not give you the peace that your soul needs. And so where you find your source of peace, it may be misplaced today. Where we find true peace, everlasting peace, peace that transcends our earthly circumstances, is in a person. And this person is the humble King Jesus who rode into Jerusalem mounted on a donkey. The disciples brought this donkey to Jesus and the text says, throwing their cloaks cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. They set Jesus on the donkey. That is kingly enthronement language. You set a king on upon his throne. They set Jesus upon his donkey. And the cloaks that they spread before him depict royalty and they depict honor. And this is no ordinary donkey either. This is no ordinary colt. This is an unridden or an unbroken colt. So there's a sense of of purity in this donkey. And so in the Old Testament, unbroken animals were set apart for a sacred task. And no doubt that's what's happening here as this cult is being used for a most sacred task to transport the creator of the universe into Jerusalem. But here's the thing. 
is Jesus is riding this donkey to his death. He knew full well what was going to happen in Jerusalem when he arrived. It was determined already. He knew he would be betrayed by his friends, rejected by his people, handed over by a kiss. He knew his disciples would flee, that Peter would deny him three times. He knew he would go before Pilate and Herod. He knew he would be mocked with a crown of thorns and clothed in purple robes. He knew he would be humiliated, scorned, insulted, beaten, and finally nailed to a cross. He knew, and yet his face was set. He proceeded to Jerusalem undeterred. Jesus came riding in as the king, but not as the king Israel thought. This king came riding in, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. He did not come to shed blood of his enemies, but to shed his own blood for his enemies, for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus rode into Jerusalem for Passover, to be himself the Passover lamb. This donkey that was pure, that was set apart, that was unbroken, trotted in Jesus, who was the spotless, sinless lamb of God. When John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, he cried out, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the sacrifice for our sins. He is the great high priest who offered himself. He is the just and perfect king. He is the suffering servant whom Isaiah prophesied. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Through his sinless life, through his atoning death on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead, through his victory over sin and death, through his ascension to sit exalted at the right hand of God, Jesus brought us peace. And this peace is freely offered to anyone who would turn away from the things of this world and turn to Jesus and place their faith and trust in him. Jesus tells us in John 17, 27, Peace I leave you with. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus gives us a peace that the world cannot offer. And if you have not experienced this peace, I invite you today. I urge you today to not miss this opportunity. The disciples spread their cloaks along the path as their king rode along, and their response was fitting. It was a response of praise and worship for who Jesus was. And this leads us into our next big idea. Praise the king who brought peace. Let me reread 37 through 40. As he was drawing near already, On the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Here we see the fitting response of the disciples and the unfitting response of the Pharisees. All of Jesus' disciples joyfully 
praised God because they have witnessed the miracles and the works that Jesus has done up until this point. They have seen the way that Jesus has healed, the way that he has cast out demons, the way that he has embraced and loved the unlovable. They sing out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is an expression that's actually found in Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was a psalm sung in festival processions into Jerusalem. And it likely was even an enthronement psalm to usher in a new king. However, though, the expression in Luke is slightly different than that of Psalm 118, verse 26. Listen for the difference. In Psalm 118, we read, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's subtle, but Luke substitutes the word he for the king. And one commentator said that by doing this, it transforms the quotation into a royal hymn, expressly identifying for the first time what has been inferred throughout the entire gospel, that Jesus is king. And in their praise, they add peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This language is also familiar to us. If you think way back, remember, remember way back when the angels appeared to the shepherds at Jesus' birth, they came praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This, this repetition paints the picture that Jesus brings peace. He brings peace in heaven, and he brings peace on earth. He brings peace everywhere and to anyone and to everyone who would trust him for it. And so the disciples, although they did not fully grasp all that was taking place, all that was about to happen in Jerusalem, they responded rightly to their king. They responded rightly to Jesus in joyful praise. Pharisees did quite the opposite. They told Jesus to rebuke his disciples, which in itself is a rebuke of Jesus. His, his, the Pharisees are saying, Jesus, come on now. You are not a king. You are not a prophet. You are not the son of God. You are not God himself in the flesh. Why are you misleading your disciples? Why are you accepting their worship and their praise? And Jesus' response is just absolute gold. He says, if my disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out in joyful praise. The disciples were made to worship. The creation itself was made to worship. And you and I were made to worship. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When we look out at the Rocky Mountains in our backyard, our response is one of, of praise, of worshiping the creator of all things. And as so many instances throughout the Bible attest to, the creation itself worships along with us in declaring the glory of God. As creation is sustained by the very word of God, it is attesting to the majesty and the glory and the splendor of the one who created it. We were created to behold the majesty and the glory of the king who brings everlasting peace and joy. Listen to a few pieces of Psalm 148, which is a hymn of praise. Praise the Lord. 
Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, and all the deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and all flying birds. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. The Pharisees couldn't stop creation from singing the praises of its creator. And we should not stop, nor let anything or anyone stop us from singing the praises of our creator. We are so blessed to live in Colorado. It's top-notch. And in fact, many people move from all over the country to Colorado to enjoy the mountains, to enjoy the recreation that is offered. A few too many people move here, Texas, California, looking at you guys. And, and when I assess our Colorado culture, it's so individualistic, right? People come here to get in the mountains, to, to ski and to hike. They, they tend to actually just worship the creation. For many, nature, the mountains, creation is their God. They get the sense of some spiritual high when they go off in the mountains. They have exchanged worship of the creator for worship for the creation. And I think sometimes we can do this too. We can get this mixed up. We can easily elevate some hobby, some, something that we like to do in our lives to the point where it becomes an idol. It becomes a god. And we unknowingly start to give our allegiance to it. We start to worship it. Sports, hiking, skiing, snowboarding, hunting, fishing. What is it for you? Fill in the blank. For me, I love playing sports. Sports of all kinds. Hockey is the best sport. So mostly hockey. But I also love badminton and pickleball and spikeball and ping pong and the list, tennis. The list goes on and on. And I believe that last year, it was starting to become an idol in my life. And so when I broke my ankle and I couldn't play any sport for five to six months, it was really, really challenging for me. And I'm still recovering from that injury. But, but it revealed to me where I had started to find my sense of peace, my sense of joy. I was unknowingly elevating the good gifts of sports over the even better gift of the giver. And that was a poor, poor exchange. I can have God himself, and all that comes with knowing God and trusting God and, and loving God, and I can easily slip into trading that for a temporal joy and peace and slapping a puck around on some ice. A poor exchange. Some of you, may need to hear that you're not going to be a professional sports player. Some of you may need to, hear, need to hear that your kid is not going to be a professional sports player. Some of you may need to hear that you are not going to find lasting happiness, satisfaction, joy, and peace in the mountains. Skiing or hiking or whatever it is. Those are bad gods. Colorado has some bad gods. 
We take really good things. We take really good gifts, and we elevate them over the giver of those gifts, the one who created it. And let me tell you, there is more joy and peace in worshiping the creator rather than the creation. And in fact, when our worship is prioritized, we will enjoy the gifts even more. When we can say, God, thanks for these great gifts. Thanks for the mountains. Thanks for hockey. I love it. But thank you even more for saving me from my sins, from rescuing me from the pits, from pulling me out of darkness. Thank you for giving yourself to me. And God, even if you took away all of these good gifts, I would still worship and praise your holy and blessed name because in in you and in you alone is where joy and peace and satisfaction and fellowship are. Jesus, the creator of all, the Lord of all, the humble king who brought peace is worthy of your joyful praise. The Pharisees and many others did not think so. They did not praise Jesus, they did not recognize him as the Messiah. They rejected his offer of peace. And it brought him sorrow. It brought him to tears. And this brings us to our next and our third and last big idea. Jesus will return as the exalted king to bring judgment. Let me reread the last few verses. And when he drew near... And saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Here we see the heart of Jesus. He wept over Jerusalem, over the people who would willingly reject him as the Messiah. And there are only three instances in the New Testament where Jesus weeps. The first one is when his close friend Lazarus dies, and he weeps with his sister. The second one is here in Jerusalem. And the third one is when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. When Jesus paused and he looked out over the city of Jerusalem before he rode into it, he saw the hearts of the people. He saw their rejection and it brought him pain and sorrow. And that's true still today. When God's people reject him, it brings him sorrow and pain. Here Jesus is saying, oh Jerusalem, Would that you have seen me as the Savior. Would you have accepted the free offer of peace that I brought? But you haven't, and you won't, and now it is too late. Your decision breaks my heart, and now you will have to live with the consequences of your decision. Jesus said the day of destruction is coming. The day is coming where Jerusalem will be utterly destroyed where the temple will be toppled to the ground. Jesus is foretelling a time in about 37 years, in AD 70, when the Roman army would come and seize Jerusalem and and destroy its temple. 
the army will surround the city and it will tear it to the ground. In fact, Jesus said, the enemy will not leave one stone upon another because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. And that word visitation is important. Uh, Often in the Old Testament, when God visits a people, he visits them in judgment because of their sin and their rebellion. And we saw this word, if you think way, way back uh, in, in chapter 1, I believe, when, when uh, Zechariah is mute and, and his son John the Baptist is born, he becomes unmute and he sings out this song of praise. Here's what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then the song goes on and towards the end he speaks of this child, Jesus, who would give salvation to his people. And he says that this is because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. In Jesus' birth, God visits his people not for judgment, but for salvation. But now... Well after the birth narrative, as we move into this passion narrative, the people have missed the visitation of salvation, and now it has become a visitation of judgment. This visitation is one that utterly destroys the temple, the place that they worshipped. And the temple in Jerusalem was huge. The perimeter was about one mile long. Uh, It was about a sixth of the city of Jerusalem. And I read that we still have a temple stone from today, from today, or today, and it measures 45 feet long and 12 feet wide and 12 feet deep. That's a large stone. And Jesus tells the crowds that this temple is going to be toppled. They will not leave one stone upon another. And if you think back to what we just read in verse 40, when Jesus told the Pharisees, if my disciples won't worship, the very stones would cry out. And so one commentator pointed out that some stones declare judgment and destruction on Jerusalem, but other stones cry out in worship. Others, like the stone that is rolled away from the tomb, that stone cries out, the tomb is empty, he is risen, he is the exalted king. But more than the physical destruction of a city and a temple, Israel is now going to have to stand condemned before the risen, exalted King Jesus and face justice and face judgment for their choices. And it's going to cost them. It was the gravest missed opportunity of their lives. Jesus, the perfect and just King, will come and he will right every wrong and he will hold every single person accountable for their sins. We only stand before a holy God through the shed blood of Jesus. We only stand before a holy God through the works of Jesus' sinless life and through the righteousness that he gives to us through our faith in him. Jesus first came humbly, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a war horse, to bring peace and to reconcile his people back to God, to give us fellowship, to give us the gift of himself. But he will come again. 
and for those in Jerusalem who rejected Jesus, and for those of us today who have not trusted in Jesus as the Savior, as the King, the day of Christ's return will be a day and a visitation of judgment. He will come again, but next time he is coming on a war horse to exact justice. John, when he sees the vision of Christ's return in Revelation, and, and he sees Christ's return to reign on earth, here's what we read. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is the exalted King Jesus returning. But we all have the opportunity today to trust in Christ as our Savior. To rejoice in the one who gave his life so that we might live with him. We all have the opportunity now to praise the one who brought peace. Not long ago, in the Gospel of Luke, we read a story of the rich young ruler. He comes up to Jesus and he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at him. He sees his heart. He sees his idols. He sees his functional gods of wealth and success. And he tells him, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the rich young ruler heard this, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, there were two criminals next to him. One mocked Jesus. The other criminal rebuked the mocker and said, do you not fear God? This man, Jesus, is innocent, but we, we are guilty. And he turns to Jesus and he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looks at him and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Two examples. One example of a missed opportunity. The rich ruler forgoes eternal life with God for temporal riches of this age. And the other, an example of an opportunity accepted. One of these men will have everlasting peace. One will not. Jerusalem had the opportunity to accept the peace the humble King Jesus brought, but did not. You today still have the opportunity to accept the peace that the exalted King Jesus brought. Or maybe you have, and today you need to be reminded of the peace that is yours in Christ. You need not worry, you need not fear, because your peace is anchored in the mighty works of our Savior, Jesus. When we look on and behold the humble king who became the exalted king, we will experience a peace so deep that it just transcends our understanding, it transcends our earthly circumstances. And this peace will lead us to praise along with the very stones that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Let's pray.
Father, we want to praise you for the peace that you brought. Jesus, how you humbly rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. You rode toward your agonizing death on the cross. But it was for the joy that was set before you that you endured the Christ, endured, endured the cross. I pray that today, God, if there are any in here who have not experienced the peace that you offer, that today would be a day of salvation. That they would turn from the things of this world, turn from temporal riches, turn from uh, desire for success, turn from the things that only offer temporal peace, and that they would find their true peace in you, and in you alone, Christ. Would you help us to be ambassadors? to share the peace that we have with others. You've called us to make disciples of all nations. Will we do so joyfully and obediently, singing your praises along with the disciples, along with the very stones, because you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our praise. You are Lord of all lords. You are King of all kings. We praise you and worship you. We ask this in your name, King Jesus. Amen. Would you all please stand as we sing a song of response?